But if you have your Bibles with you today, how about turning with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 as we continue our journey through the book of Romans. We'll be reading today, our, our, our focal passages are going to be 29 and 30 today and probably next week. I don't know that we'll get through uh, it today. There's so much to unpack in these two verses. But I want to read verses 28 through 34, and then we'll, we'll, we'll bring a couple others in as we begin the sermon today in the introductory portion. But for our purposes today, I wanted to give you some context uh, that comes in light of verses 29 and 30. So verse 28, we will begin. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who, died, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then Paul goes into a quote from the Old Testament. Let us pray. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for this time that you've given us to be in your house. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us, first and foremost, through your son, Jesus Christ, as you sent him uh, into this world to take on flesh, to walk among us, to go to a cross, to suffer the wrath that we deserve. And Father, we thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit to draw us and to convict us and to bring us to this place of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work in us, uh, the redeeming and regenerative work of salvation. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us your word. And in this word, we understand who you are, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, what your plan of redemption is. We know about you and what it is that you are accomplishing and doing in, in, in time and space. And so, Father, as we engage your word this morning, we would ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that you would help us, Lord, to, to know more about what it is that you're doing in this world and how it is that we fit into what you are doing. And may this word cause us to live in ways that bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, today we come to probably, I think, what would be the summit uh, of Paul's doctrine of soteriology, his doctrine of salvation. And this summit is found really in verses 
29 and 30. It is found in five key verbs that are in verses 29 through 30 that we'll talk about uh, in a moment. Among those are foreknowledge, predestination. I remember sitting in a Sunday school class at a Southern Baptist church at one time, and we were in a text of scripture. I think it might have been Ephesians or somewhere like that that had the idea, the concept, the word predestination in the text. And someone in the back of the room says, I don't like that word. Well, my friend, I have to tell you, if you don't like that word, then you have a problem with God because God put it in the book. All right. And it's all over the book, throughout the book. So rather than saying we don't like that word, why not let us get into God's word and see that we have a proper understanding of what it is that God is saying to us through that word? Because God is not in error. If, we, if anyone is in error, it is us. It is not God. God is not in error. So we need to understand to the best of our ability what it is that God is saying to us. And another issue we have with this idea of predestination is that uh, we, uh, we think that in some way it causes God to be less honorable and that it impinges or infringes upon our responsibility or will. And I'll, I'll just lay the cards out front on the issue, just like what Spurgeon said. You know, someone asked Spurgeon one time, how can you reconcile this idea of God's sovereignty and salvation, this concept of God's predestination and the responsibility of man? Because over and over again, we are called to come. We are called to believe, right? How do you do that? And Spurgeon said to them, well, I see no need to reconcile them because I see no discrepancy. What was Spurgeon saying? Both of these are truths that are in God's book. If we are saved, we are saved because of who God is and what God has done. If we are lost, we are lost because of who we are and our failure to comply with God's demand to come to faith in Christ. And there needs to be no reconciliation between these two doctrines because they are both inspired doctrines in God's word. We just need to understand what it is to the best of our ability that God is saying in these doctrines. And I believe find the hope that God has left us in this uh, profound doctrine of his sovereignty in salvation. And so we will endeavor today to begin that journey to look at these five verbs that are there. But as we do that, I want to lay lay some contextual groundwork because as you have seen throughout the almost two years, next month will be two years that I'll be here. I have been here through these two years. We have consistently in whatever book that we've been in, we have consistently tried to follow the author's logical progression of thought throughout the book, right? We, I, I do not believe in, in bumper sticker theology, uh, while we do use cross-references and we do use the analogy of Scripture, the, the totality of Scripture to bring, bring fortification to the truths in these books that we're in, these authors wrote this, Paul wrote this book with a particular emphasis and he's laying out an argument. And so for us to understand what Paul is saying, we must follow that argument and then bring the rest of Scripture to, to fortify what Paul is saying to us. So here's how I want to do this. You know, Paul, 
everything that we have been studying in Romans from Romans chapter 1 until now have been leading to this point, okay? This Paul ends this chapter in a great crescendo as it relates to God's saving work in Jesus Christ. And in the beginning of this chapter, you remember at the end of chapter 7, Paul, you know, kind of left us in a in a little difficult spot because he says, "Hey, there's a battle that goes on within us. With the inner man, I follow after the law of God, but with the flesh, I follow after the law of sin. And so it kind of left the door open for us to think that there may be an occasion in our life that we could find ourselves still eternally condemned in God, that we could actually lose our salvation because of this sin that we still engage in from time to time because of this flesh that we drag with us every single day. Well, if you remember at the beginning of chapter eight, Paul kind of kind of uh, closed the door on that idea. In chapter eight and verse one, look at what Paul says. He says, "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." And then he begins to explain why that is true. In, in, in particular, with the work of the Holy Spirit in our life that has been given to us as believers. But Paul, this therefore is there because of everything Paul has already said in Romans. Because of this faith, because of this, this righteousness that is found by faith alone in Christ alone, God has through the Holy Spirit redeemed us, regenerated us, and sealed us until the end. There is no condemnation right now in this moment. You remember we talked about that in, in verse 1, this, this present concept that right now we stand not condemned before Almighty God. Well, at the end of our section in chapter 8, that's why I read a little bit further than our two verses today. At the end of that, Paul almost brings about an inclusio. Uh, he almost bookends this chapter because look what he does. He takes us all the way back to the beginning after he gives us this magnificent concept of God's sovereignty and salvation. Look what he says at the end of this chapter, beginning in verse 33. He asks three questions. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That goes all the way back to first, verse 1. We are not condemned. So who is it that's going to bring a charge? Now, Paul is saying this in light of what we're about to study in verses 29 and 30. How do I know this? Because he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Verses 29 and 30 in particular. If God is for us, who can be against us? Therefore, who can bring a charge against God, God's elect? No one. No one, because God has declared us to be not condemned. And then he says in verse 34, another question, who is to condemn? Well, the implied answer is no one. Why? Because Christ has dealt with our condemnation in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one is the implication there. Why? Because God is sovereign in our salvation. It is all of him and none of us. And God, no one or nothing can take away what God has wrought in us in Christ Jesus. And don't miss that little phrase, this love of Christ. Why is it that Paul said it that way? 
Why didn't you say who can separate us from Christ? Who can separate us from God? Because this saving act of God is an act of love, intimate love to us on God's behalf, right? God, you remember that passage we read earlier? God says that he shed abroad his love in our hearts. How did he do that? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that phrase takes us all the way back to verse number 28. Why? Because in verse 28, Paul reminds us that we know that all things work together, right? Now, there's a phrase in between those two statements. Who does it work together for? For those who love God. Well, who is it that loves God? The only people that can love God are those who have been redeemed and regenerated by God. Why? Because we already learned earlier in Romans chapter 8 that the fleshly man, the mind set on the flesh, he is hostile to God. He is at enmity with God. He is in rebellion against God. And so Paul is talking about a consistent group of people. And he's playing off really of verse 18. Do you remember what Paul said in verse 18? Paul said in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare to with the glory that is going to be revealed to us or in us, depending on your translation. And so Paul explaining to us what, why it is that he can say what he says about suffering leads into this magnificent statement in verse 28, everything between verse 18 and 28 is explaining why Paul can say what he says about suffering. And the culmination and summation of that explanation is found in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then he gives us a definition of who it is that loves God. Those who are called according to his purpose. Those are the same people. And then I think Paul caps, uh, encapsulates for us in a word who those people are in the end of this, toward the end of this chapter in verse 33. We've already, already read it. Who is it that can bring condemnation to God's elect? They're all the same people. They're all the same group of people. Our responsibility today is to try to understand what God is telling us about this group of people and about salvation and about his sovereign work in salvation and how that relates to us. And so we're going to do that by unpacking these five words, but today we've got to look at just, we're going to look at just one of those words, and it's probably the one that is the biggest hurdle for us to get over, and we must understand it properly if we're going to be able to understand what Paul is saying in this text and what Paul is saying about God and salvation for us. And we know that this is an explanation of verse 28. What we're about to read in verses 29 and 30 is an explanation of verse 28. How do I know that? I know that in the English because it has the word in the ESV for. Now, in your Bible, it may have a different word. I put my little board up here. I didn't know if I was going to use it, but we'll, we'll try to. I know that this is an explanation of verse 28 because of that word right there. That word is hati in the Greek. And hati means that sense or because. 
That's the basic definition of that. It can be translated for. It's telling us this is the reason that I know what I know in verse 28. Some translations may even translate it because, which is probably, in my mind, a better way to express it. Why is it that all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose? It is because of this fact that I'm about to tell you in verse 29 and verse 30. Because the first word that we need to understand is, those whom I foreknew, he also pre, or he foreknew, he also predestined. The first word is foreknew. Then he goes on to say, to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there are five words in this passage that we need to understand uh, if we want to understand this text. Proegno, proridzo, ridzain, and ekklesain, called. And the ones he called, he justified. And ekkaisen, and the ones he justified, he glorified. Those are the five words that we got to understand. All five ver of those words are verbs. All five of those verbs are in the aorist active indicative. I know that blesses your soul to understand that, but it's very important for us to know that because the aorist is the aorist tense is the simplest historic tense. It is the simplest way in the Greek to say that something happened. And it happened in the past tense. God did something and he did it in the past. The active voice is God is the one who is doing the action in this verb. It is God who's doing this. It is God who foreknew. It is God who predestined. It is God who called. It is God who justified. It is God who glorified. And then the indicative, we've talked about that before. It's just a statement of truth. These, this is a historical fact that God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, uh, and glorified. And we know the subject is God. It's the third person singular. He, God, is the one doing this. So what does it mean when God does these things? That is our task today to understand, first and foremost, what it is that God is doing when he foreknows. And again, I've, I've told you the word foreknow is proegno, the very first word up here uh, in this verse, proegno. And it comes from two Greek words that are put together, preposition, uh, pro is before. You remember the circle uh, I've, I've told you to draw in your mind? Pro would be before the circle. And uh, ginosko is the, is the root word of this proegno. It is to, to know, okay? And that's the simplest form of it, to know. What does it mean to know? That's really where we're driving at today. What does it mean when God says he knew someone and he knew them beforehand? That's really the, the basic definition of proegno, uh, prognosko, to know beforehand. What does that mean? And so we're going to unpack that uh, this morning to the best of our ability. Now, here's what men say. When I say men, humanity, here's what 
some people say, about this issue of foreknowing in this passage of Scripture. And it probably is what most of you believe in this room, just to be honest with you. It's probably what most of you believe in this room. Now, my task is today is in the most loving way that I can and the most accurate way that I can, if that is what you believe, to tell you that you have misunderstood what God is saying in this text. Okay? And so I'm going to try to do that with some help from Scripture. Here's what most of us believe about this word. God foreknew that he looked down the corridor, he looked down the tunnel of time, and he saw all of those people uh, in history, throughout history, who were going to believe on him. So he chose them in the sense that he foreknew that, and he chose them, and he's predestined them, and he's justified them, and he has glorified them. And so my task today is to tell you why the, the Bible is not saying that. Now, I don't think we have to leave this text to say that. I'm going to show you from a bunch of places in Scripture what it means when the Bible says God knows people. But I think from this text, we can see it quite clearly. Because what does the text really say? The text really says because, and here's the key word, hus is the word, should have that right there, is the word, and that is a pronoun, it's in the, uh, direct object place, and it is the word whom. So just from this text, we already know the answer. What is it that God knew? God knew a people whom he foreknew. Now, does God know actions? Yes, he knows that. He knows every action of every person, doesn't he? Does God know other people? He knows every person that's ever been created. Why? Because he's the one who created them. And he knows the ones that are going to be created yet tomorrow. I don't, but he does. But this text is saying quite specifically that God knew a people. How do I know that? Just look at the rest of the, the text that we've already looked at. What, what is it that Paul has been driving at? There is a People who love God, there are people who are called according to his purpose in verse 28. And in verse 29, the reason that all things work together for the good to them is because this group of people who are called according to God's purpose, he foreknew them. He predestined them. He called them. He justified them and he glorified them. So, why is it that we think that we have, to, we have to understand this text in this way? Why is it that we think that we have to say that God looked down the corridor of time and he knew the actions or he learned the actions of people and then he chose those people? If that's what this verse means, then what we claim to believe about God's sovereignty and salvation that is by faith alone and Christ alone and not of any works of man, well, we have just turned it on its head, haven't we? When we say that God looks down time and he saw what I was going to do, my action, and then he chose me. Paul's not saying that, and this text is not saying that. Why do, we have, why do we have to say that? Because we want, to, we want to protect the character of God. That's what we're trying to do, is it not? 
We, we, we say it this way. I, I can't, God can't be that way because that would be unfair. That would be, that would be unloving of God if he just foreknew a group of people, right? Well, here's the problem. One, God doesn't need protection from us, okay? And secondly, getting ahead of myself without telling you the outline that I'm giving you, I'm about to give you four reasons why this is not, uh, not correct, that we think that God looks down the corridor of time, that this has to mean what I claims it, mean, it meant in the beginning, that God knew a group of people. Because... God knows every action of every person, and if, he just, if it was just about his prescient knowledge of people, then every person would have to be called in the sense to come to salvation, in the sense that they would all be predestined, they would all be uh, called in, in a saving way, they would all be uh, justified, and they would all be glorified, if it just means that God knows people. So we know it can't mean that. Secondly, if God looked down the corridor of time and saw what I was going to do and that impacted what he did, then what am I saying about God's omniscience and God's decree? God's never learned anything. He knows all things all the time in one moment. And what I do does not impact what God does. God is doing what God is going to do. Hear what, uh, hear what Spurgeon has to say about this statement. He says, Some assert that the Lord foreknew who would exercise repentance, who would believe in Jesus. This is readily granted. He does know that, is what Spurgeon is saying. But a reader must wear very powerful magnifying spectacles before he will be able to discover that sense in this text. I do not find them either in the English version or in the Greek original. If I could see them or see, if I could so read them, the passage would certainly be very easy and would very greatly alter my doctrinal views. So again, Spurgeon is saying, God does know what everybody's going to do, but that's not the implication of what Paul said in this passage of scripture. The implication is that God knew a particular people. I got it. I understand the questions. I wrestle with them every single day. Every time with this text this week, I wrestle with this this week because I know what the Bible says in other places. What does the Bible say in in chapter 10, as a matter of fact, right? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that correct? Amen. Absolutely. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That is correct because anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. How do we reconcile those two? I don't. Because I believe both, that God is sovereign in salvation and that I have a responsibility to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because both of those doctrines are in the book. If we're going to believe that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and no mixture of work, we have to believe what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8. We can't ignore it. And in Ephesians chapter 1, we can't ignore it. And in other places that we'll read in just a moment. I've got to move along. I'm already down to 15 minutes left. So here, four reasons. 
Dr. Steve Lawson gives four reasons, but he gives them in a little bit different way. Uh, I, I'm going to borrow that idea. There are four reasons. A couple of them I'm using that he used and probably some cross-references that he used and other theologians used down the road. Um, as a matter, matter of fact, uh, Schreiner in his commentary has very similar passages uh, to this and Grudem in his commentary has very similar passages to these. But here, here's how we're going to go at this. Four reasons. One, I've already really alluded to, because God has never learned anything. He knows all things because he created all things according to his divine decree. That's not new to me. It's not new to, to Steve Lawson. That's, that's a the concept that theologians have believed throughout the ages. Here's one that is interesting that I, I did not think about. Uh, and this is one that Steve Lawson gave when he was dealing with this particular passage. He says, because if God looked down the corridors of time, the only thing he would see men doing on their own volitional will would be to rebel against him. How do I know that's true? Because I read Romans chapter 3. Do you remember Romans chapter 3? As a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles open there, just flip back right quick to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 beginning in, in about verse 10. If I can find it. Right there it is. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Look at what Paul says about humanity. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat, and he goes on to talk about this depravity and how it impacts our body. What is, what is the tenor of Scripture as it relates to humanity? If we are left to our own volitional will, we will be constantly and eternally in rebellion against God. It takes a work of God in our life to change that nature, hence the doctrine of regeneration. Now here's where the, the rubber meets the road, and here's where the meat of this is. The meat of it is, what does the Bible say? Because what does the text say? about what it means for God to know someone. Because that's really the question we're asking, right? The heart of the issue is that God knows something, someone, right? What does that mean? The prefix is that he just knew them before or he knew this thing before. What does that mean? We've already dealt with this particular text. And again, I think because of the first two words of this text, we don't have to leave this to find the reality of the truth. Because... The ones, the whom he foreknew. This is about foreknowing people, not about foreknowing the actions of people. Although God does know the actions of people. This text is saying that God knew a people, and in particular, a people that verse 28 describes as those who are called according to his purpose. So there, there are five times I think that this, text, this word, prognosco, is used in the New Testament. One is in the book of Acts that deals with people knowing about Paul's life. Okay, his, his former life, his, his, they knew about him before he got there, if you will. His, his reputation preceded him, uh, if you will. That one, while it's important, is not uh, prescient to what we're talking about today. The other four deal with the idea of what it means or how the authors use the word prognosco or foreknow when God is involved in the knowing and when it's in the verbal form in particular. First Peter, I want you to write all these down. Won't have time, you won't have time to turn there and look at them because I, I got to go fast. First Peter 1.20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. 
So what do you think it means that God, when God the Father says that God the Son was foreknown before the foundation of the world? Did he look down the corridors of time and say, oh, there he is, I'm going to have a God the Son? No, because Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. He eternally existed. This has to do with this relational aspect of the Father and the Son and the Spirit ultimately in a Trinitarian work of salvation. Before the foundation of the world, God had already determine the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, that Christ was going to come and be the ultimate sacrifice for redemption, the ultimate revelation of God the Father to humanity. So it's God knowing an individual, namely, in this case, Jesus Christ. Second Peter 3 and verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, Take care that you are not carried away with the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability. And again, this is from our perspective. So that verse deals with what we know about what God is doing in the issue of salvation, how it ought to impact our lives. Romans eight twenty eight nine is the other place that is used, the verse that we've already read today, so we won't belabor that text again. But in Romans chapter 11, in verse 2, we're going to see this same thing again because Paul in chapter 9 is another place uh, that we're going to have to deal with some issues about God's sovereignty in salvation and God's sovereignty in this world. And 9, 10, and 11 really are a group of chapters that go together. But in chapter 11, Paul begins to deal with this issue of Israel because he's still answering the question he brings up in Romans or chapter 9. Why is it that it seems that many of Israel have fallen away? Is, has God's word failed in that sense? That since Israel is not following after the Messiah for the most, for the most part? He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So how does God use this relationship of foreknowing, this prognosco, in relation to Israel? There are people he knew, right? And Israel's the prime example of that. Israel didn't exist before God called them, right? There was no nation of Israel until God says, hey, Abraham, go to this place that I'm going to show you. And in that, God knew a people because that was part of his divine plan. And God brought forth that people that he knew. And God entered into covenant relationship with the people that he knew. So the New Testament even has elements of this idea that when God is, when God is engaged in this foreknowing, this verb, this action, it is always about a people that he knows. And then we, we can go to the, the Old Testament a little bit because there's a parallel word in the Old Testament that is brought over, I think, in the Septuagint with this idea of foreknowing. And that's the word yada in the Hebrew. And really, again, the root of the word is to know, to know by experience. But it's used in a very particular way a lot of times. And when it relates to God, almost always it is used in this way of knowing a people or a person in an intimate, covenantal, loving kind of way. We first encounter this idea when we meet Adam and Eve. After the fall, God gives some direction to Adam and Eve. You know, they're going to be fruitful and multiply. And in verse chapter, one, chapter 4 and verse 1 in Genesis, 
The Bible says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Now, do you think that has to do with, hey, he just knew she was there, right? Obviously, she was the only one that was there beside him in the sense of humanity. So it has to do with more than him knowing she existed. Obviously, we as adults understand what that means because the result of that knowing was that, hey, the Lord gave me a male son. So he knew her in an intimate, covenantal, loving, relational kind of way. So well, we go over to Exodus chapter 33 and verse 17. Write these down. Write these down. You just have to go read them. Exodus 30, 33, 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Starting to get the picture of what it means when God knows someone or when we know God. You know, we talked about that in Sunday school today. If you were in, in Sunday school, Hosea, what was it? Strive to know me, right? Isn't that God's call for us? God's going to know us. We will know <coughs> him. So he knows him in that intimate, covenantal way, that personal, loving way because of this favor that God has bestowed upon him in the knowing. 1 Samuel 2, uh, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And in the negative sense, they did not know the Lord. Do you think that they were atheists, that they didn't believe Yahweh existed? No, it means that they didn't have that covenantal, intimate love relationship with God. You're starting to see the picture of what it means to be known by God. Uh, Psalm 1-6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You think the Lord doesn't know the way of the wicked? Well, look, we just learned it's going to perish, so he knows what's going to happen to them. But this knowing has to do with an intimate relationship that he has with this group of righteous people. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, boy, that's a powerful picture of the knowing of God, isn't it? Before Jeremiah was ever born, God had already predetermined before creation that Jeremiah was going to be his prophet. Now, if that doesn't cause you to pause and think about this issue of what God is doing, I don't know what will. We see it again in, in, in the New Testament. It's not one of the cross references I have. But what about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was called from the womb, right? God knew him intimately and called him from the womb. What does that tell us about God's sovereignty and salvation? Hosea 13.5, I I, it was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Now, do you think that that just simply means God knew they were there? Talking about Israel? No, it means that he had a personal, intimate relationship with them while they were in the wilderness. Amos 3, 2. You only have I known, the Lord says of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. 
Now, you think that means that God didn't know about any other nation? He knew about every nation. So what does it mean when he says, you only have I known? I have a personal covenantal relationship, a loving relationship with Israel. Now let's move to the New Testament. And again, these are all based on the word gnosko, to know, which is the root of the word that we have up here, proegno, uh, which is in the heiress form again, why it sounds different. But the lexical form is prognosco, so you can hear the same word gnosko, to know. So how does this relate when, it, when we're talking about the usage of knowing in this realm of humanity and, and God? Well, look what the Bible says about Joseph is kind of akin to what we learned about Adam and Eve. Matthew 1, 24 through 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not. Well, does that mean he just forgot that she was there? I know some of you men would like to do that, right? Does that mean what she did? No, it means that he did not have this intercourse with her. He didn't bond with her in this relational covenantal act that consummates marriage in the biblical sense. So it's more than just the prescient concept of knowing. It's a relational aspect to knowing. Matthew 7, 21, 23. Not everyone, and this, well, this, this drives the nail home to me. Listen to what Jesus says. This is at the end of uh, Jesus' dialogue about end times and the ultimate judgment that is to come. He has the sheep and the goat, right? And they are separated. And he's talking to both of them. And he ultimately, this is in reference to the goats, okay? Those who are not in this intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. These who are in rebellion against God. Listen to what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You get the picture about what Jesus is saying? This idea of salvation, this idea of knowing, is about knowing people in a covenantal, salvific, loving way. That's what God means in this text when he says he foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Now, again, you think that's just about the prescient sense of I've got a knowledge that God exists and God's got a knowledge that I exist. No, it exists. It has to do with this relational aspect of knowing someone in that personal, loving kind of way. Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge that's in the noun form, of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, you think that just means that God knew, hey, uh, let me look down the corridor of time, 
See what's happening with Jesus. Uh-oh, they're about, to, they're about to crucify him. They're about to whip him. They're about to put him on a cross. So I'm going to have to take that. And to quote uh, Steve Lawson, I'm going to have to make lemon, lemon juice or lemonade out of lemons because of what they're doing. No, it means that God had a preordained plan for redemption that involved God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, coming into humanity, walking the, the life that he walked and going to a cross and dying for sins and suffering the wrath of God. He had an intimate knowledge of what was going on. Uh, who Jesus was and what, what he was going to do as he decreed this salvation. 1 Corinthians 8, 3, almost done. But if one, anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now, do you think that that just means that God has a knowledge? Hey, that one loves me. No, it has an intimate relational aspect to the knowing of God because God knows everybody, right? He knows about everybody. In this sense, he knows them in a personal, intimate, redeeming kind of way. Galatians 4, 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. You see the idea? You get in the picture? 2 Timothy 2, 19. I'm going to overload you with scripture today. 2 Timothy 2, 19. But God's firm foundation stands before or bearing this, this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Get the idea? God knows about everybody, but he knows in a particular redeeming, loving kind of way those who are his. That's what this text is telling us today. Those whom he foreknew. I think this may be the last one. Yeah, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 20. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to, how are these people the elect? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Then if you skip down to verse 20, he says, he was, meaning Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. I hope that these passages, if they've not done anything else but cause you to think, that they cause you to think about this idea of what it means when God says that he foreknows a person. It's not just that he knows the actions of that person. This text is telling us that God knew a group of people who were called according to his purpose. Now, again, I will end where I began. I get it. God had to slap me in the face with this concept over and over again before I yielded to his will in understanding what this means, that God is sovereign in salvation. I proclaim that all of my ministry, all of my ministry, God is sovereign in salvation. But you know what I really believe deep down in my heart? That men were ultimately sovereign because I believe the drivel that came out of our evangelistic culture in America that says God has made his vote, Satan has made his vote, now it's time for you to cast the deciding vote. That is heresy. If we truly believe that God is sovereign in salvation, it is all of him and none of me.
And I get it. For God so loved the world that whosoever shall call upon his name shall be saved. I believe that with all of my heart. Every person that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How do I reconcile God's sovereignty and my responsibility? I don't. I have to believe them both. God is sovereign and I'm responsible. Let me, let me close with what Spurgeon said when people challenged him in this issue. He says, now re with regard to myself, you may, some, you may, some of you, go away and say that I was antinomian in the first part of the sermon and Arminian at the end. I care not. I beg of you to search the Bible for yourself, to the law and to the testimony. I, if I speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in me. I am willing to come to that test. Have nothing to do with me where I have not, nothing to do with Christ. Where I separate from the truth, cast my words away. But if, I, if, but if what I say be God's teaching, I charge you by him that sent me. Give these things your thoughts and turn unto the Lord with all your hearts. And that's where I have to stand today. I love all of you. I love all of uh, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But when I stand before you Sunday after Sunday, I can't stand up here saying, what are they going to think about me? How do they feel about this text? I have to stand up here and tell you what this book says. And if you think I'm not saying what this book says, then you have to, you have to call me on that, Right? But it's not about what I think. It's not about what you think. It's about what God is saying. It's about his book and his word. That I have to believe. And therefore, I have to believe that God is sovereign in salvation and that I am responsible because God has called me to come. Both are true. And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I have to leave the rest to God. So I don't know where you are today in your salvation, right? Are you known by God? That's the ultimate question. Not known about by God. Are you known in an intimate, personal relationship with God? What is the evidence of that? The evidence of that is that you love him and that you are obedient to him because you bowed your knee to him. If you're not saved today, bow the knee to Christ. Confess him as your savior. We'll get to that in Romans chapter 10, right? Isn't that a volitional act of my mind that I confess the Lord, Jesus Christ? I have to do that. God's the one who saves, but he still calls me to confess. That's your responsibility. And if you're saved today, you're saved because of what God did in Christ Jesus. And if you're lost today, you're lost because you're in rebellion against what God did in Christ Jesus. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Father, that just like Spurgeon said, whatever it is that I have said that uh, is not true or is not 
coherent and, and consistent with your word that, Lord, you will take it out of the minds of people and they will disregard it. But whatever is truth, that you will, you will permeate their heart with that truth, Father God, and that it will change who they are. And it will change the way they live in this world. We're asking first and foremost, Lord, that you will draw us through the person of the Holy Spirit. If there's, not a, if there's a person in this room that's not saved, a person who is not known by God, that, Lord, today you will draw them to yourself, that you will, you will convict them of their sin, you will convict them of, of the judgment that is to come, and that you will show them that their only hope is Jesus Christ. You have your way and your will with us in these next few moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.